This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges, brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media, for the week of July 13th through the 19th, covering Alma chapters 32 through 35. Our special guest teacher today is Marilyn Faulkner. Hi, this is Marilyn Faulkner, author of the user-friendly Book of Mormon. We're going to dive into some of the greatest chapters in the Book of Mormon, Alma 32 through 34, which include the great discourse on faith. Now you remember that when Alma the Younger and his brethren split up and began to work to strengthen the various stakes of Zion that they were finding, they met two kinds of believers. First, Alma met Korahor, one of three that had been labeled the Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. Korahor's arguments were the classic existentialist fare. You know, we can't know anything for sure, man is mortal, and he will die, and that's all we can really know. Korahor believes in what modern science teaches us today, and that is the rational mind is all that can be used to determine what is true and what is real. He asserts that the manifestations of the spirit are, in his words, the effect of a frenzied mind. And that's in Alma 30, verse 16. Now, what is a frenzied mind? That's a mind that is open to things that might be outside of empirical evidence. He goes on to say that false traditions that are handed down from past generations combine with these effects of a frenzied mind, and so we can't trust these impressions. So there can be no atonement. And in his words, every man fares in this life according to the management of the creature. Alma 30 and 17 is that. And notice how when we begin to talk about the rational mind being all there is, we stop talking about a human being as a work of wonder by created by God. But instead, he becomes a creature. Certainly science today has taught us to view ourselves not as the creations of a divine being, but as creatures, just cousins to the monkeys. Alma's only response to these elaborate arguments is to simply testify that he knew there is a God, and then he goes on to show God's power. After Korahor repeatedly asks for it, and strikes him dumb. After Korahor has been struck dumb, he reveals something very interesting. Turns out he has a frenzied mind too, because he has received a spiritual revelation. He says that the devil actually appeared to him and told him what to say. And he goes on and then says this remarkable thing about his own personal motives. In Alma 30, verse 53, he says, I have taught his words because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind, and I taught them even until I had much success, insomuch that I verily believed that they were true. Now, with these very interesting arguments in mind, let's go into Alma's next adventure, this visit to the Zoramites. Now, these folks had something called the Ramiumpton, and we talked about this where they get up and pray. This stand only holds one person at a time, and everybody else gets to listen. Mormon tells us that Alma and his brethren are so astonished by this strange worship, they have to hold a little district meeting and figure out what to do. And in this beautiful meeting, he blesses everybody, gets them all excited about the challenge that is before him. They split up and begin preaching. And in this context, we have Alma's great sermon about faith. In this sermon, he answers both kinds of believers, the non-believer like Korahor, who has rejected all faith as the result of a frenzied mind, and also 
The mistaken believer who really wants to believe uh, but is has been taught false traditions, and so he isn't sure how to find the faith he needs. Alma's answer to all of it is to use a scientific discussion uh, of a symbolic item, and that is a seed. He compares faith to a seed. Now, faith is an abstract concept, but a seed is a real thing that can be observed scientifically. Let's think about what a seed is. Uh, According to one definition in the encyclopedia, the seed is a mature ovule comprising an embryo or miniature plant, along with food reserves, all within a protective seed coat. Now that is a way of saying um, that if we compare it to our human lives, in human conceptual terms, a seed is an embryo, which we understand, and also the the placenta wrapped into one thing. We have the embryo, which is the beginning of the baby, and the placenta, which is literally a bag of food that feeds the baby while it is in the womb. So what would the seed of faith be? We might say it consists of the one or two things we believe, or even just wish to believe, wrapped up in the ideas and beliefs that will strengthen and nourish that one true idea. This is a very interesting concept. True is the operative word here, because according to Alma, if we have faith in things that aren't true, they won't grow any more than a seed that is not given the nourishment it needs by its protective coating. So it must be the desire to believe, that's the seed, surrounded by actual true things in which to believe. Let's see how this might work in real life. Say you believe in God. You've had a few experiences where you think that something spoke in your heart or mind. If you've been raised in the LDS faith, you connect these experiences to the church. And so you believe that the church is quote-unquote true, or in other words, that the church is God's authorized organization on earth. And by extension, that would mean that Joseph Smith was a prophet and the Book of Mormon is God's word, just as is the Bible. And there you have a testimony. We have little children get up in church and say those very words. And that we may be observing is the seed of their testimony. But what is the foundation of that testimony? It may be just a few nebulous moments in your life when you felt something beyond yourself. Or it may have been a logical construction that you built up on the fact that the church system has worked well for your family and yourself. Or it may be moments of certainty that you've had while reading your scriptures. Or moments of transcendence that you've had while in prayer. Whatever the case, at some point, unless you're quite exceptional, you may begin to doubt that testimony. You may begin to doubt those experiences. Like a house of cards, when one of the foundation pillars of your testimony falters, the whole thing can come crashing down. What do you do then? This is what Alma addresses in the chapter that we are studying now. One of the remarkable things about this chapter is how Alma switches over into scientific language that is very uh, applicable today. In order to describe a process that we would not normally consider to be scientific, but he believes that it is. He says this, And now as I said concerning faith, and I'm in verse 26 of chapter 32 in Alma, 
that it was not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. You cannot know of their surety at first unto perfection any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. But behold, and here are some key words, if you will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my words. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. And if you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, and if you do not cast it out by your unbelief that you will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, and it beginneth to be delicious to me. Now behold, would this not increase your faith, I say unto yea? Nevertheless, it hath not grown up to a perfect knowledge. A very interesting little wiki uh, called Feast Upon the Word on the Internet explains this conundrum in an interesting way. They, go, they say, and I quote, It is significant that this desire to believe is a desire instead of a desire to know the truth. It's only a desire to believe, he says here. I go on. This minimum case begins with a desire that the gospel is true. We have to start by wanting it to be so. The experiment that Alma teaches us about is no impartial experiment. Those for whom truth means only those things which we can discover through impartial analysis will find no way here to discover these truths. In their eyes, Alma begins the experiment by stacking the deck in his favor, because the experiment only begins with those who want to believe that the gospel is true. We see here that God has set up this world in such a way that the most important truths, for example, that God is a merciful God who wants to hear from all of his children, rather than hearing only once a week in a synagogue from the well-off, are revealed only to those who, at a minimum, want to believe in such. And as we see in the surrounding chapters, those who want instead to believe in a God who elected just themselves to be holy, quote, whilst all around them are elected to be cast out by God's wrath down to hell, to such people, so long as their desires remain so, Alma has no way to give them faith. So this is a very interesting scientific experiment. The difference between science in a lab and science in your heart is not that the process is different. The process is the same. We begin with something, we observe it, we watch it, and then we make hypotheses based on that. Hypotheses. Alma says they're not perfect knowledge. But they're theories we come to based on what is actually happening. But the only way to begin the experiment when it is an experiment in faith is that it must be a fertile heart, a heart in which a seed can be planted. Just as if we wanted to test if a seed would grow in my garden and we put it in rocky soil and never watered it, it wouldn't grow and we could scientifically say one of two things. Either the seed was bad or the soil was bad. And Jesus, of course, gives us a wonderful parable about that in the Bible. Alma says here, in order to do this scientific experiment in faith, faith must be planted in a fertile heart 
and that fertile heart is one that wants to believe. When Korahor calls the desire to believe the effect of a frenzied mind, and certainly any thoughtful person questions that his or her conclusions when they're colored by desire, that they be true, uh, we, we sometimes question those thoughts. We say, did, did I think this just because I want it to be true? But God's science appears to have different rules than people's. In God's definition of knowledge, desire is tantamount. You have to want the gospel to be true and for Jesus to be the Savior. You have to be emotionally invested in truth before it will manifest itself to you. Alma isn't a bit worried by this because a principle that isn't true will not germinate. So we have a little safety precaution here. If it's not true, no matter how much you want it to be true, these next steps won't happen. It won't grow and produce what he calls swelling motions in Alma 32 and 28 that let you know that what you're wanting to believe is something that is real and true. Thus, the Zoramites on their Ramayamtan could recite a prayer filled with falsehoods, but it would have no power to move or change hearts. They wanted to believe what they were praying, but it was a dead thing. It was not an embryo filled with life waiting to burst out. So that is the mistake people make when they say that, well, if you have doubts about what you are believing, it must mean that what you are believing is not true. In other words, it must mean that the seed is bad. No, the problem with the doubts is that they have made your ground rocky and dry. There's nowhere for the seed to grow. So unless you can encourage that desire in your heart to believe, Alma teaches us, your belief and your faith can't grow. So since we're talking now about how doubt makes the ground dry and rocky, let's stop and talk about doubt for a moment, because it's not exactly doubt that is the problem. You know, philosophers and theologians have differed for centuries on whether doubt is a good thing or a bad thing. Soren Kierkegaard, the great writer of faith, said, Every mental act is composed of doubt and belief, but it is belief that it is positive. It is belief that sustains thought and holds the world together. So here Kierkegaard may be trying to tell us that doubt is a bad thing. In other words, doubters don't have the positive impact on the world. Believers do. Shakespeare chimed in with this sentiment, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. And that is certainly true. These two statements assert that if you doubt, you're doing damage to your beliefs and you aren't really getting anywhere. You are paralyzed and thus unable to act. We can think of poor Hamlet, whose words these were. But now other philosophers disagree and in fact see doubts as very important components to faith. Paul Tillich said, doubt isn't the opposite of faith, it is an element of faith. And the great Buddha himself encouraged us, doubt everything, find your own light. So what's the answer here? Is doubt a good thing or a bad thing? Well, personally, I think the answer is yes. Doubt is a good thing and it's a bad thing. Doubt can destroy a testimony, but it can also be the beginning of an unshakable one. And the symbol of the seed helps us understand how this works. I'm growing a garden right now, many of you may be, and in my garden, um, I come and shake up the earth. I come and I take and I till the earth, I move it around, I combine it, I add things to it, I take things away from it. Um, but I don't leave it at that. Because if I don't put water and fertilizer and other things on that ground, um, my plants won't grow. However, it isn't water and fertilizer that grows the plant. It's also all of those strange, not seemingly rich things that are in the earth that combine with it. 
So the doubt may be the ground uh, before we begin to add to it these other true principles. Um, You don't need to worry if there are things in the gospel and things in the church that you doubt. You do need to worry if you don't add to those things truth and nourishing items that can help that hold and help the seed to grow. So let's just think about how that works. We know that to germinate, a seed must break open and die. Jesus said in the 12th chapter of John, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. If you've ever watched a seed grow, you know that it breaks open for the inner seed to make contact with the nourishing items in the soil. If those two elements can't combine, then the seed can't grow. But literally, Jesus' analogy was, it's the death of the seed that causes the life of the plant. It can be a very painful thing when the beliefs that you've held since childhood are challenged and even cracked open. This can be a time when the seed dies or when encountered by truth, it really begins to live. The difference between life and death for the seed or for the testimony is how we choose to nourish that seed when those cracks of doubt occur. Alma tells us in chapter 32 that faith can begin with nothing more than a desire to believe. And though this seems self-contradictory, we've talked about the fact that in God's science, this desire is part of the nourishment of the seed, the desire that surrounds that little seed. So when we raise our children in a loving, sweet environment, and we bear our testimonies to them, and we tell them that gospel is true, or when as missionaries or as friends we work with someone who is investigating the gospel, who has racking doubts and challenges and struggles, and we continually testify to them, this is true, you can feel good about this, you can have confidence about this. We're not deceiving that person. We are helping them cultivate the first element of faith, which is a desire to believe. The first thing that we will cultivate in our children is a desire to believe. Let's not Fool them into thinking that that desire to believe is perfect knowledge. Alma's perfectly clear with us. It's only the beginning. But sometimes a child who has had the desire to believe and a warm feeling in their family then goes out into the big world, finds other things that cause the seed to crack open in their heart, and we have not taught them how to nourish that seed on their own. We often hear people... uh, encourage us not to doubt our beliefs or believe our doubts. And I worry about this a little bit, that we make people feel bad for doubting. Many young members today have encountered speculations on the internet about the prophet Joseph Smith, multiple accounts of the first visions, revelations about the lives of the early leaders of the church that are far different than the idealized portraits with which we were raised. Suddenly, doubt cracks the seed of faith. And in many cases, the honest young person feels that if they have doubts, it must mean that they don't believe or that the things that they have been taught are not true. Here's another scientific fact about seeds. Seeds often, this is a quote from Encyclopedia, seeds often exhibit dormancy, meaning that they fail to germinate even when provided with adequate water and suitable temperature conditions. Dormancy acts to prevent germination until the conditions are right. This dormancy may be broken by proper exposure to light or darkness. 
There's a lovely little story that was told by a person whose son had reached a point of really doubting his testimony. And he had an opportunity uh, to meet the church historian at that time. And the church historian was kind enough to take this young man to lunch and have a good talk with him. And he said, I have two words to say to you about the doubts that you are having about your testimony. And those words are, dig deeper. And I think it's interesting that when we begin to talk about testimony, it's hard not to use gardening words. Um, If you have doubts about certain parts of your testimony, don't cover that over in a dormancy and put it away somewhere saying, I'm so afraid that if I really investigate this, I'll have to leave everything I was taught. No, let's get some light on there and dig a little deeper. What do we do to feed the seed of faith to cause it to germinate? Alma said this, in his words, we must look forward with an eye of faith. So look at Alma 32 and 40. And then he goes on for a couple of chapters teaching us to pray, to converse with God, to involve God in all of our daily dilemmas. He encourages us to understand true doctrine about Christ and his atonement. He rehearses the law of Moses and points out to us how that points to Christ. So we get all the scriptures involved. He talks to us about soft hearts, continual repentance, humility, and complete reliance upon Christ. In other words, he encourages the Zoramites and us to concentrate on living the things that we know are true. I must say that if it's wrong to doubt, I'm in big trouble because I'm one of those people who's kind of a born doubter. I'm just skeptical. I love Thomas. I, I have, a, I have in, uh, the, among the apostles, I'm thankful Jesus was merciful to him. When the Lord patiently said to Thomas, be not faithless, but believing. When the Lord spoke to the man with the disabled son in his arms who said, Lord, I believe, Help thou mine unbelief. I can't read those words without emotion. I think maybe they better print that on my tombstone. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And all of my life, the Lord has been doing that very thing. As I immerse myself in things that I have been taught are true. And I think it's interesting that when we begin to talk about testimony, it's hard not to use gardening words. Um... If you have doubts about certain parts of your testimony, don't cover that over in a dormancy and put it away somewhere saying, I'm so afraid that if I really investigate this, I'll have to leave everything I was taught. No, let's get some light on there and dig a little deeper. What do we do to feed the seed of faith to cause it to germinate? Alma said this, in his words, we must look forward with an eye of faith. So look at Alma 32 and 40. And then he goes on for a couple of chapters, teaching us to pray, to converse with God, to involve God in all of our daily dilemmas. He encourages us to understand true doctrine about Christ and his atonement. He rehearses the law of Moses and points out to us how that points to Christ. So we get all the scriptures involved. He talks to us about soft hearts, continual repentance, humility, and complete reliance upon Christ. In other words, he encourages the Zoramites and us to concentrate on living the things that we know are true. I must say that if it's wrong to doubt, I'm in big trouble because I'm one of those people who's kind of a born doubter. I'm just skeptical. I love Thomas. I, I have, a, I have in, uh, the, among the apostles, I'm thankful Jesus was merciful to him. 
When the Lord patiently said to Thomas, Be not faithless, but believing. When the Lord spoke to the man with the disabled son in his arms, who said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I can't read those words without emotion. I think maybe they better print that on my tombstone. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And all of my life, the Lord has been doing that very thing. As I immerse myself in things that I have been taught are true, I find that those things find their way into my heart and nourish the seed of my testimony. Remember that things may be factual and not be real. As a born doubter, I've learned to embrace my doubts as a part of my journey of faith. And if you are a little bit of a doubter, I say embrace those. Don't be afraid of them. But don't let them determine your destiny. That is determined by our beliefs. And my beliefs are based in Alma's definition of what is real. In the 35th verse of this wonderful chapter, he says, Oh, then, is this not real? I say unto you, yea, because it is light, and whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Therefore, you must know that it is good. So Alma, once again, using scientific language, says, You can discern when things are light and true. You can see how this feels in your heart. You can see how it manifests itself in your life. Things that are factual and not real do not have a way of changing our life and our hearts. We may go to church and have them give a long, boring lecture about different things that are facts, and we go home and we think that didn't make any difference. But we may go to church and hear a story or a poem or a song. Many of these real things have an emotive content that touches our hearts through symbols, poetry, music. The scriptures are so diverse because they are trying to find a way into our hearts that works for us. So you may read something on the internet about Joseph Smith that makes you really upset. And you say, well, how can this, this fault in his character be correlated to somebody who could receive divine revelation? I'll tell you that what is real about Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon is that they ooze with light. There is so much inspiration, joy, love, and Christianity in the Book of Mormon in the teaching pro- and in the teachings of Joseph Smith. It's overwhelming. Just Alma 32 is a marvelous work and a wonder. We could have just that chapter, and I would believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. So we miss the treasure in the field and bypass the rich vein of gold if we find that it is surrounded by crude granite. That's something precious to miss for the sake of a few facts. Ask hard questions. You don't need to live a lie. If you can't get satisfactory answers to all of your hard questions, though, keep thinking, keep praying, and keep adding good soil and light and fertilizer and water to the seed in your heart. Nourish the seed. Don't let the seed die. Live the truths you've been given because this really is a good seed and your life will be filled with discernible light and real joy if you will sort of pile onto that seed, truth and light. I want you to look at each day of your life and how much information you take in during the course of that day that would kill a good seed. And then I want you to ask yourself, how much time are you spending nourishing the seed of faith?
We're bombarded all day long, every day, by things that would kill a really good seed. We ourselves must make the choice to nourish the seed of faith. And we know how that's done. By immersing ourselves in things that our experience of life has taught us to be true. Alma concludes, Because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by you shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit even until ye are filled, that you hunger not, neither shall you thirst. Then, my brethren, you shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. These are the last two verses of Alma 32. And let me just stop right here and say that if you would like to nourish the seed of your own faith, I'd like you to begin in Genesis and pull out everything from the standard works you can that have to do with the tree of life. Then I'd like you to go into the Book of Mormon and pull out from the very beginning, the Book of Mormon begins with a dream about a tree of life. Then it proceeds to Nephi having a vision of that tree and in deep symbolic language compares it to Mary and Jesus. Go back to Nephi 11, 1 Nephi 11, and see how that comparison is made. Copy down the words that are used to describe Mary, Jesus, and the tree of life. Then come all the way in this jump over to Alma 32. Well, you have to stop at the allegory of the olive tree. You have to stop at some other lovely places where the tree is mentioned in different iterations. And then you come to the last couple of verses of Alma 32. Look at the words that describe the tree of life. And have just burst upon your mind the startling revelation that all along, you're the tree of life. Every single living soul is a tree of life. And that is that that faith and testimony of Jesus can come into your heart. And that's when you truly begin to live. And you live forever. I would just like to suggest that Joseph Smith could not have come up with this kind of deep, beautiful symbolism, symbolic language that echoes itself over and over all the way through this book until we get to the very end and the challenge that has given us to the end. It's so consistent and so beautiful that it makes my heart pound as a student of literature and it makes my heart pound as a student of the scriptures and it makes my heart pound as a follower of Christ. And when I feel that swelling motion within my breast, I say with Alma, Oh, is this not real? Because it is light. Rather than succumbing to our doubts, I think we need to challenge ourselves when it comes to faith. Truly ask ourselves, are we nourishing that seed that many of us were lucky enough to have planted in our hearts when we were children? As Jesus compares faith to a a tiny seed that can grow into a great tree, we must think about how much we are doing to nourish our little tiny seed. 
Most of us spend many hours every week nourishing all the other seeds, seeds of doubt, skepticism, pessimism, and even our own despair. Yet we may feel hesitant to pour even a little water on the seed of faith, lest we look gullible or silly. But let's remember Korahor. That seed is real, and it can grow. Reading the Book of Mormon with a heart open to what God wants to teach us can help it grow. And I leave you this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in Cedar and F as in Fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.